2016. The year we wish would end already. Will 2017 be any better? Maybe, but most of us know that in reality, it's an uphill battle from here, or a downward spiral into the inevitable apocalypse. Hey, 2016 might be remembered as year one of any future dystopia. Right, back to trying to be optimistic. Movements have sprung up since the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States. Oh, that's still such a hard thing to say. But movements that existed long before election day have been shown a new level of solidarity, while also coming under threat by the increasing visibility of white supremacy. Media has played a large role in all of this, whether it be from undeserving free airtime for the current president-elect to reports of fake news being spread on social media. And that brings us to what so many have been wondering: How big was social media's role in all of this? In this podcast series, we'll be looking at how movements have utilized social media, for better or for worse, and what it means for the future of activism. I'm your host, Amna, also known by some as Mango. Welcome to More Than a Hashtag. Since this is the first episode, I probably should give some more information about who I am and why I decided to make this podcast. I graduated this past year with a BA in International Affairs and Political Science from the New College of Florida. For my thesis, I studied the use of social media as a tool for mass mobilization by looking at several cases: Tunisia and the 2011 revolution. Ukraine and the Euromaidan movements, and Mexico and the case of the 43 missing students. I also briefly examined how ISIS has also utilized social media to their advantage. All of this was done within the context of the impact it had on human rights, which, in the end, could still be debatable, but leaned towards the positive end of the spectrum. It's too soon to really tell in any of these cases, but one thing that I learned for sure is that social media has created a platform for mobilization that previously just didn't exist. Now, it's all too easy to dive into the talk of social media and activism and arguments of slacktivism and different hashtag campaigns. I want to start instead. With definitions and theories, and an understanding of technology that usually are only contained within academic works, like those I used for my thesis. If we want to have a real conversation about social media and activism, we need to break that academic journal paywall. I know this stuff can seem boring, but it's an important foundation for this discussion, and I'll try to make it interesting. Okay, so let's start with what exactly is social media, 
Yeah, I know, I know. Basic question. Come on, Amna. We all know what social media is. But it's important to define it properly before we continue this discussion. The usual answer anyone will give is Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, the platforms we all know. But what does it mean to be a social media platform? Let's define social media as Kaplan and Heinlein did in their work. Users of the world unite. They define social media as, quote, a group of internet-based applications that build on the ideological and technological foundations of Web 2.0 and that allow the creation and exchange of user-generated content, end quote. Now, I'm sure the next question is, what the hell is Web 2.0? Well, Web 2.0 refers to worldwide websites found on or by the use of user-generated content. Defined by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development as a website that is 1. publicly accessible, 2. requires minimum amount of creative effort, and 3. was created outside of professional routines and practices. Think of it like this. Web 1.0 was the era of GeoCities websites and Yahoo. Web 2.0 was the era of MySpace and onwards. I guess even Neopets counts as a social media site, now that I think about it. <laughs> anyway, cool. We have the basic definitions down. Now let's talk about activism for a minute. One of my favorite breakdowns is from Sandoval Almazan and Gil Garcia, two scholars who published an article of social media activism titled Towards Cyber Activism 2.0. That ends in a question mark, by the way. I don't think I did too great on imitation there. So we have activism, cyber activism 1.0, and cyber activism 2.0. Old school activism relied on leaders in a local community, getting the word out person to person and by ways of traditional media. It was a slow, long process to build up momentum and mass mobilize. In comes the internet, and along with it, cyber activism 1.0, where you now have email and websites. Engagement is still happening mainly offline, but there is a point of reference people can go to and communicating has gotten a lot quicker. Then comes Cyber Activism 2.0, which builds on all of that and now introduces user-powered platforms that allow for viral organization, where anyone can be a leader and people from around the world can now connect and mobilize. Thanks to Cyber Activism 2.0, we now have movements and organizations like hashtag Black Lives Matter. Now, let's talk tech. Technology is an amazing, complex thing. I'm lifting some of this straight from my thesis, by the way. As Jose Van Geek writes in his book, The Culture of Connectivity, A Critical History of Social Media, a book I very much recommend, the quote, technological dimension, end quote, can be categorized into five concepts. Metadata, algorithms, protocols, interface, and defaults. Metadata encapsulates a wide range of structured information, like sound, text, images, coordinates, which is all collected when users interact with social media. 
This data is then processed through algorithms, or lists of thoroughly defined instructions for calculating a particular function. Social media platforms also utilize protocols in their coding to set up restrictions and rules that force users to obey certain instructions in order to partake in the flow of information. The invisible interface is the platform which links software to hardware and users to data, while interface is what appears on the screen when at a certain web address. The last of the five concepts, defaults, are what the name implies, settings that are the default for an interface. If these defaults are difficult to change or tweak, users are more likely to conform to the interface's architecture. User agency within technology is a complicated matter with boundaries blurry due to the architecture of the digital world and the vastness of media. Users of any interface are involved in both implicit and explicit participation. Implicit referring to participation as inscribed in the engineer's design, and explicit referring to how users actually interact with social media. Let's look at Facebook as an example. There are a few things a user can customize, like who you see on your newsfeed, what posts show up in your personal timeline, who can see those posts, and things like that. What users can't control is the kind of ad content we see, or at least not completely. Through algorithms, Facebook looks at our interests, web browsing history, our likes, in order to tailor content and advertisements and give us suggestions on what other pages to like or who to add as a friend. It's these same algorithms that have become the focus of this criticizing Facebook's tendency to create bubbles of information. Facebook has protocols in place so that you see certain things in your newsfeed. And the visual interface is the blue and white boxes you see on your screen. By default, you see your newsfeed when you log on, not your individual timeline. These concepts can be applied to any social media site. You can examine it from each thing, from data to default. Okay, phew. Quick rundown out of the way. If listeners have questions or want me to elaborate more on all of this in the next episode, just let me know. Now we're coming to theories. What? They're theories about social media? When it comes to its relation with activism, yes. There are those who applaud social media, those who despise it, and those who are a bit in between. I'm basically just going to quickly cover those arguments. I'll do my best to keep this short and sweet. Let's start with Malcolm Gladwell, a renowned skeptic when it comes to social media's usefulness in activism. Gladwell and fellow naysayers, argue that social media promotes slacktivism, which he defines as activism with weak links and ties that basically relies on people feeling important by simply liking or retweeting. He believes that social movements can only succeed if they're tied to prominent leaders and have strong general organizational ties. He even brings up a hypothetical situation saying that had Martin Luther King Jr. tried to 
wiki boycott in Montgomery, he would have been crushed by the inherent white power structure. He would have not needed to use social media because he could reach the majority of his target audience Sunday morning at church. Alright, Gladwell, that was the time before the internet and smartphones, so I'm not sure how great of a hypothetical situation that really is. Obviously, social media activism doesn't replace on-the-ground offline action. It aids it. Another skeptic, Morozov, says that the internet is used mainly for entertainment, and very little is used for socio-political reasons. So obviously social media is no good for activism. Basically, in the end, critics think that social media is simply a communication tool, and doesn't really assist movements on a large enough scale. Then we have the Defenders. Clay Shirky is a known proponent of social media activism, and a media professor at New York University. He argues that social media is integral to forming and promoting political and social discussions. Social media is just a new media platform, and Shirky brings up media of the past, such as the Samizdat collectives in Soviet-controlled Czechoslovakia and Poland that shifted the power dynamic between the public and the government. The Samizdat collectives disseminated information and it helped people take power from a weakened state. Supporters of social media as an important tool of activism and mobilization believe that it breaks barriers, allowing for citizen journalism and for cyber activists to reach out to the international community. If the Arab Spring had occurred without social media, would the world really have heard about it? Would the Arab Spring even exist as a protest spread country to country because news of revolt was spreading on social media? Also, in direct opposition to Morozov's argument, Ethan Zuckerman developed the cute cat theory. That's right, the cute cat theory. Do you like it? Basically, the theory says that activists actually benefit from the internet mainly being used for entertainment, like people watching videos of cute cats. When the state starts to interfere with the internet in order to shut down cyber activists, they end up messing with casual internet users that were previously apathetic to the situation in the country. These users could even find proxies that would lead them to see censored sites. Zuckerman also brings up latent capacity, arguing that those who use Web 2.0 for non-political or non-activist reasons drive the development of digital infrastructure that activists can then use. So you have your critics and your fans. What about those who fall in between? Of course, there's no real right answer when it comes to social media's importance in activism, and all perspectives have their merit. Amir Alamali writes in The Power of Social Media in Developing Nations about the issue of the global digital divide. He argues that too often the discussion around the use of the internet is simplified, especially when concerning developing nations, where access to the internet ranges due to a variety of factors. He also argues that physical access aside, another part of the digital gap between the West and the global South is the use of the internet and its effectiveness in these uses. For those who don't know, the global South is a term used in transnational and post-colonial studies to replace terms like third world and less developed countries. 
Ali believes that social media can assist governments in developing nations as they strengthen their infrastructure leading to a wider user base. That wider user base could have citizens participate in civil and political matters if the government is willing to engage its citizens in conversation. Then we have Merlina Lim, another scholar who studies information and communications technologies. She looks at successful and unsuccessful cases in Indonesia. While she overall has her reservations, she does give credit to Facebook's radical transparency. Radical transparency is defined as the core of Facebook's infrastructure, which revolves around the idea that people and society are better off when they make themselves transparent. This is a term that Facebook staff actively use, and it's written about in David Kirkpatrick's book, The Facebook Effect. Lim acknowledged that Facebook's radical transparency allowed people to read and learn about particular events or issues that they otherwise wouldn't, and allows people to absorb information just by scrolling through their newsfeed. Now, it's important to note that social media does rely on traditional mass media to be successful. It's mass media outlets that often pick up on social media stories and broadcast them to a much larger audience. In regards to social movement studies, we have the issue of framing and diffusion theory. Diffusion theory basically is the study of the spread of ideas concerning policy reform and regime change. And framing is basically as the name applies. How an idea is framed and contextualized and what kind of framing gets people to join a movement. Social media as a focus of study can be dissected and analyzed at every angle. And this podcast series is going to look at different movements and discuss what those movements are, what they mean, and what the outcomes will be or were for movements that have passed. It should be obvious by now that I really do believe in the power of social media and the internet as a whole. Digital media is necessary for anything to be successful in today's world. So why would it be any different for activism? There's a lot going on in the world, from the recent U.S. presidential election and all the news that comes with it, to the ongoing crisis in Syria that's been going on for years, to the Russian ambassador to Turkey being assassinated, among countless other stories and events unfolding across the globe, it's not that easy to sift through it all. I think that's why... I'm going to leave this episode off here to serve as an introduction for future episodes to come. I don't know yet what my next episode will be. I want to make it relevant. And with everything going on, I'm going to have to really pinpoint on something. But thank you for listening. And thank you for everyone who encouraged me to do this. I just hope I'm doing it right. If you have any questions, suggestions, complaints, please be gentle with me. This is my first time doing something like this. You can drop a line on the Facebook page, more than a hashtag podcast, or email at mtahpodcast at gmail.com. I'm going to try and get one of these episodes out every week, every week and a half at most. 
and I expect all of you to hold me accountable because I want to make sure that I do continue with this project as it is something that I am very personally invested in. Again, thank you for listening, and I hope you came away from this knowing a little bit more than you did before. Mm-hmm.